Welcome back, Super Friends. I don't even think I told my guests this, but this is the first episode uh, of a new reboot of the podcast. We had a crisis on infinite earths when, when Meltdown closed, but now we're back and better than ever. And uh, we have 80s haircuts now. We're very yuppie. We're, we're modern, just like John Burns, Man of Steel. I am joined today by a, a storyteller that I admire quite a great deal, uh, Arvind Ethan David. Hello. Thank you for coming on the show today, man. I appreciate it. Thank you for coming here. And we're in your fortress of solitude. It's not that solitudinal today. <laughs> well, you closed a door, so it's that my, counts. It's my fortress of being interrupted. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm honored to be the interruption today. Thank you. All right, so we're at ED8 Media. ID8 Media. ID8 Media. My accent's coming out. Yeah. So, uh, Arvind, we talked on Twitter a little bit about the Man of Steel. We did. And that's why you're here today. I'm very excited. When? Uh, so let, let's go way back. When was your first encounter with the Superman character? Are you a comic guy, a TV guy? When did you first see that well, as Shield? Probably the first movie, because um, I'm. I mean, I was born in 1975. Mm-hmm. And the first movie is 1978, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So I would have been three. I think it was one of the first movies that I was allowed into a cinema to see. That's a great age to see it. Um, and it is at three. And even, frankly, the first movie stands up. The first, And interestingly, rereading uh, John Byrne's Man of Steel for this conversation, it's interesting to see how much they owe to each other sure. or, or how much John owes, owes to it because it, it, it came first. Sure, sure. Um, but uh, the real thing I remember... I was not a Superman guy really? as a kid. I think very early my allegiance was Marvel and was Spider-Man. Interesting. And my brother, though, my younger brother, was always a Superman guy. Mm. And he was one of these kids, like there is not a photograph of him between ages three and seven when he's not in a full Superman suit. <laughs> I respect that greatly. Full, cape, full thing. Like mm. it was his security blanket. Yeah, yeah. And... So he was a Superman guy, and I was the Spider-Man guy when we were when we were kids. And what's interesting now, as one becomes, in a weird way, at the time, my argument was, Superman's boring, he's all-powerful, he's morally perfect. Now, mm. I look at him and I see the complexity, sure, sure. and some of that is in how the stories have been retold, mm. and some of that is just also just a grown-up's perception of being strong is yeah. not the same as being, you know, uninteresting. That's and, a great comment. And, yeah. and and I now find myself much more moved by Superman than I ever was as a kid. That's great. Yeah, how, how much harder it is to be a decent person in the modern era. And, and yeah. So did you encounter the movie when you were living in England? Or was it, you were born in Malaysia, right? I was born in Malaysia, uh, but we moved to London the first time when I was about two. Mm-hmm. So it would have been in London. Excellent. So was there like a Superman, was was the American aspect of the character something that was uh, like abrasive to you at all? Do you have a learning curve with, with stuff like a... You know, no, it's really interesting. When, you, when you're when you born in um, a developing country, mm-hmm. particularly somewhere like Malaysia, which is both a colonial, uh, you know, a former colony of the UK, but also so influenced by American pop culture, you live in this weird hybrid world where it's... Monty Python on the one hand and Superman on the other. Mm. And you're sort of, you just, frankly, I don't think I really thought about the difference. It was all Western. That's what oh, sure. we called it. Sure. Like, this is Western culture. Mm. And at the time, we weren't making a clear distinction between American culture and British culture. It was just sure. white people's culture, essentially, gotcha. was what it was. So, no, there was nothing abrasive about it then. I remember being told when I was older, not that much older, but being told as a 
you know, teenager maybe, that Christopher Reeves's face was the second most recognizable face in the world. Yeah, you yeah. Know, it's Jesus. Yeah. And Jesus doesn't look like Jesus, right? <laughs> it's that painting. Yeah, it's yeah. that painting. It's that Speaking of white guy culture. Yeah. White Jesus. Yeah, yeah. You know, white Jesus first, uh, Christopher Reeves second. Mm. And I remember feeling great about that. I remember thinking, okay, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take those two as my top two. I mean, you know, in later life, Jesus got demoted, but at the time it felt good to me. Was pop culture really in, like important to you back then? Because a lot of your work in the modern time, a lot of your work today seems to remix pop culture, like uh, Douglas Adams books or the like Alanis Morissette records mm-hmm. you enjoyed when you were a young person. So, how do, how did that play into your life, pop culture in general? And how did that bridge the gap between you living in Malaysia and in England and in the U.S.? Specifically, comic books were. Um, my father is he's retired now, but he is a lawyer. Once you're a lawyer, you're always a lawyer. And he used to work very long hours, and I didn't see a lot of him as a little kid. Mm. But he would bring back, I remember he would come back, and he had this lawyer's leather briefcase with brass clasps on it, and sort of hard and boxy. Mm. And he would click it open, and every day he would bring back some comics for me. That mm. was, he was like, sorry I missed your day, but here are some comics. That's really cool. And so they always had a very emotional connotation. Mm. And so that was, you know, and from, I don't know, three, like, you know, from the first thing I ever read after see Spot the Dog were comics so comics were part of life from from the start and pop culture generally of course I mean mainly narrative Uh, music to some extent Uh, no to a very large extent my father used to we used to run around the house dancing to Boney M and um, uh, Neil Diamond I don't know I don't know why those two particularly come to mind but maybe the dance moves particularly is what I'm remembering but uh, so yes it was a very big part the interesting thing to answer your question about how it affected when we moved mm-hmm. to England and then you know, again to America. One of the interesting reversions, or re- reversals rather, is when you read, I don't know, P.G. Woodhouse. P.G. Woodhouse was a big deal to me when I was a kid. I read, P.G. Woodhouse wrote something like 180 books and I read all of them. Oh, wow. You know, and whether it's Jeeves and Wooster or Smith and Blanding's Castle and Lord Emsworth and all these books... And I love them. And I, you see yourself, because it's the nature of imagination, as the lead. Sure, right? sure. Yeah, yeah. You are Jeeves, mm-hmm. or you're Bertie Wooster. Then I went to British boarding school, and I discovered I wasn't. Because sure. those guys were white, mm-hmm. and I wasn't. Sure. And then I was like, oh, no, I'm the character like in the corner who's getting the drinks, or is like the bad guy. That's who I am. Uh-huh. And so there was this real sort of confusion and it wasn't about racism per se. It was about realizing that you just weren't represented in the stuff you had read. Yeah. And so, you know, jump forward, you know, 30 years and to see now, you know, that the Miles Morales Spider-Man yeah, yeah. is finally going to happen on screen. Mm-hmm. And you go, okay, okay. And you think what a difference that must make. Of course. Um, I think about this in terms of Halloween every year. Mm. I was... I remember saying, or even in terms of Comic-Con, I was saying to um, uh, to Max Landis, who I worked with on Dirk Gently and who's a dear friend, we, you know, he was like, oh, who are you going to be this Halloween? Or who, are mm-hmm. we going to dress up at Comic-Con? And I'm like, dude, you literally, you want to be Sherlock Holmes, you just you put on a hat, you're Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, yeah. You want to be Superman, you just curl your hair, you're Superman. Why? Because you are like a 
prototypical tall white guy. Yeah. Right? You can be literally any superhero from the canon. Did you ever have that action doll when you were a kid? Yes. Yeah, so it's just a white like Ken doll, basically. Mm -hmm. And you can buy different costumes for it because you could be Captain America or Batman or G.I. Joe or anybody from any comic or any TV show. Exactly. But you you combated that in a really interesting way, though, because didn't you put on a play where you were Dirk Gently? I did. For that that high school. I did. That boarding school. Um, I put on... I love that. (laughs) So it was... I don't know, I was 15 or 16, and it was my turn to put on the school play. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had just read, I don't think I'd even finished it. I think I was halfway through the first Dirk Gently book, the original yeah. Dirk Gently Solistic Detective Agency. And for some mad reason, I just went, this, let's do this. And Which is the, so funny, because it's really hard to adapt that. Like oh, A lot of it is in the description of what's happening, or there's point of view of inanimate objects, and, and like how do, you, how do you adapt that into a play? I mean, the how isn't the question. Sure. It's like, why? Yeah, yeah, why yeah. would anyone do that? And I don't know that... I, I cannot... You know, memory is this weird, porous thing, and you rewrite memories. I can remember doing it. Mm-hmm. I remember the physical sensation of the suit I wore. I remember the lights. I remember we programmed... You know, we had just had this new theater system put in, this new lighting rig put in mm-hmm. to the school theater. And the um, drama master was so proud that it could have something like 50 lighting cues pre-programmed Ooh, into it. Fancy. And he was like, we'll never need this for a school play. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we used like 180 for Dirk Gently. Oh, wow, wow. <laughs> so, but the why, I have no idea. I think it was vaguely, yeah, a desire to... A desire to control the narrative. It was mm-hmm. a desire to go, you know, we had just done, the play we had done the year before, or the semester before, was Merchant of Venice. And I thought I should play Shylock. I thought I'm the best actor in my year. I should play Shylock. That's what I should do. Interesting. I played the Prince of Morocco. Sure. Of course I did. He has a good speech. <laughs> yeah, not the Jewish guy. Not the Jewish guy. <laughs> so even in a play about racism... Yeah. <laughs> oh, the irony there. That's it horrible. Was, it was problematic casting. So this was like... I was like, you know, nobody's going to tell me that I can't play the lead in a play that I'm writing and I'm directing. Yeah, yeah. And I think to this day that's true. I mean, Lin-Manuel is on record saying the reason, you know, when he wrote Hamilton, he wasn't going to play Hamilton. Mm. He was going to play Burr. Mm-hmm. He thought Burr, you know, was a better part. He was more suited to his skills. And then he went, no, screw it. If I don't cast myself as the lead, no one else is going to do it. Yeah. And yeah. so Lin-Manuel is Hamilton forevermore. It's such a desire to do that with characters. I wrote Superman a little bit for a Christmas special a few years ago, and the first thing I had him do was like, he's speaking Kryptonian with with a, a tongue that is uncomfortable because I'm a Mexican guy and my Spanish is kind of shit. Right. So I gave that to Clark Kent, like having representation there and having that identity uh, aspect. It's very important as a producer. How are you tackling that with the work that you create now? Like, how do you make sure that your, your work um, represents a, a wide variety of people? I want to talk about your thing for a second first because that is so smart. I have never thought about that. Oh, thanks. The idea that Superman. Because, you know, everyone writes the story about Superman on Earth is an alien Mm -hmm. and is a foreigner and is, you know, and there have been lots of interesting things written about that, I think. But the idea that when he goes home... Mm -hmm. He is awkward and can't speak the language. But that's great. I want, oh, to, I want to read that. I'll send it to you. Yeah, he has, he has a son now in the comics. So I had him trying to teach Kryptonian culture to his son, even though he doesn't really know it because he grew up in Kansas. Mm-hmm. So I like the idea of like Supergirl correcting his accents because she was actually there. Of she course. remembers it. And, and like, that's really good. And being an immigrant is a, such an integral part to the Clark Kent story. Yes. And he's actually even an, an undocumented immigrant. So that's oh. interesting, too. That is interesting. Did any, did any of that uh, aspect of the character call out to you later when you moved to the U.S.? 
you know, much later. Because um, yes, you were here when uh, this book came out, when Man of Steel came out by John Byrne. No, you? no, oh. no, no. I, I've only been in America seven years now. Oh, wow. Uh, I moved here in 2011. Well, a belated welcome. Thank you very much. <laughs> nice to be here. Um, you know, I, I moved to Barack Obama's America, and I'm having my first child in Donald Trump's America, which is a oh, confusing thing to happen. Oh, so sorry. Um, there's a certain whiplash to that, but it's all right. It's all right. Um, my my child will outlive Trump's America. Yes, yes, yes. And hopefully mold a, a better one. So, so so hopefully so will we all. If you want to put him in a rocket and just kick him off to another <laughs> planet, I wouldn't. I respect that move, frankly. It, it worked so, for Jor-El. It's so interesting. I was um, when I was at grad school. I was at grad school in London, and in two thousand and two to two thousand and four, which was the George Bush era. Sure. And I went to this very international grad school. I went to London Business School. And one of the philosophies of the school is that no one nationality should have a, should be dominant in the class. Mm-hmm. So my class was 300 people. We had 62 nationalities. And the average size of each of those was like, you know, 10, 15 people. So it was very, very diverse. Cool. The largest contingent in, the, in my two years was Americans. <laughs> and they were all left-leaning refugees mm. from the George Bush years. Oh, man. They were like, we can't be in America <laughs> right now. So right now, grad schools around the world yeah. are just full of liberal Americans <laughs> running. Oh, man. All those great minds are missing out on over here. It's a bummer. It's a bummer. So let's transition from that depressing mm-hmm. topic to the Man of Steel, which yes. is what we're here to talk about today. So were you a John Byrne fan prior to this book? Yeah, I was I was aware of him. Like, I, I don't know that I was a devotee. I think it was this book that made me a devotee. Okay. Uh, but I know, obviously, he, you know, he made his bones in Marvel, and he yeah. did lots of amazing work there. And I remember it being like a, contra- like a controversy at the time. Yeah, yeah. DC wooed him over. Just repeating itself now, Brian Bendis, are you familiar with yes. him? Yeah, so now he is on Man of Steel number two. He's mm-hmm. doing the, a new series with the exact same title, yes. and he was a previous Marvel guy, so they're that again they're like that worked they're like let's let's literally reboot ourselves with the same idea that's it I'm really curious about what Brian will do to the Man of Steel I haven't read it yet is it good yeah it's, it's fun I thought he would make it more grounded the way that John Byrne in this book makes it very much like an 80s grounded like fi- you could film this kind of story mm-hmm. Brian Bendis's uh, take was not that the first thing he does he introduces a giant space orc named Rogglesar and I really respect that. I'm like, this guy coming from Marvel to DC, and now I can let loose. He's tired of being grounded and writing Punisher and Luke Cage and That's Jessica funny. Jones. And he's like, here's some space orcs, everybody. It's it's not, like, political at all. It's nothing that you would expect from someone who's, like, hungry to write Superman. It's just him fighting a giant orc. And it feels weird for, like, the era we're in to have, a re- right. like, a reporter hero not being, like, blatantly topical right. every single panel of the well, page. Maybe I, they'll get into that. Let's though. see what he does. Yeah, I, I respect him Brian has a habit of uh, confounding expectation. I'm yeah, sure he'll do it again. He's wonderful. We mentioned Miles Morales earlier, which mm-hmm. he created. He's a great guy. Yeah. This is actually a building that he's... Uh, he's uh, He's in a lot. He's associated with this building. It's because Circle of Confusion. The Circle of Confusion's across the other way. And also when Powers was briefly on the air, the writer's room was in this building. Oh, really? So Brian used to be in and out quite a lot. I'm such a Bendis nerd. That's amazing. Yeah, we saw the Circle of Confusion walking up and I gasped because someday I want to be repped there. Yeah. So anyway, (laughs) not enough on me. (laughs) John Byrne's Man of Steel. This book is really funny. Uh, Each issue sort of stands alone and it tells a slice of life in in a new Superman's story. Uh, the first issue really tackles the origin of Clark Kent and, and like the, the Kansas aspect of him. Um, yeah, what is your favorite Superman character b- besides him? Like, what, who of the Greek chorus were you into? Oh, interesting. interesting. And Dirk and Dirk, the strongest characters I think are the, like the tertiary characters who get fleshed out later. Like, I love Todd Brotsman as much as I love Dirk. 
I mean, that's it's it's interesting, and I think it also says. I think look, we always find ourselves, don't we? It's the old thing, like you know, which which super friend are you? Which, yeah. Which friend are you? Yeah, yeah. Which golden girl are you? <laughs> that one mostly, I find the yeah. golden girls one. <laughs> yes. I get that out all the time. Ethel? No. Um, <laughs> Called I, it. I I think. Um, and and this is you know this tells you all you need to know about me. I am always I always either go no no I'm I'm the lead obviously that's who I am sure sure or I write myself in as myself. Gotcha. So normally when I'm reading a, a Superman comic or anything, I'm like okay, I'm just I just pop in here <laughs> and we have a chat and I'm like oh obviously they're at the Fortress of Solitude go there mm. and then he goes and does it and then I leave and I quietly take credit for it it's very Grant Morrison of you to invade the narrative that, and, that, that, that is what I do but I, I, I gotta say I don't and I think this is one of the reasons why for a long time I was a Marvel guy rather than a DC guy because or, or certainly not a Superman guy because I don't know that I love the ancillary characters really as, as much interesting um you know, I've always found Lewis annoying. Hmm. Uh, I mean, Luther. Luther is who, after Superman, is Luther. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the compelling thing, right? Yeah. If he could uh, just see it life from like a slightly different perspective, he would be a better man. Hmm. Oh, do you like his take in this book? Where he's not the the bald, cackling super scientist. We have him. He's literally just Donald Trump in this. Like he's based on him. John Byrne has said that. Right. He looks and behaves like him. And it's one more example in fiction we have of Trump being a bad guy, where they're like trying to warn us. It's interesting. It's it, it's both Trump and it's also you know Gene Hackman's Luther. Sure. You know, it's the mannerisms for sure. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's 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 doing that. I think ultimately it's less interesting. I think I think the interesting Luther. I mean, Trump is much less interesting than Lex Luther. You know, because um, Trump is. I mean, the thing they have in common, which is interesting psychologically, is they are bottomless narcissists sure sure and 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 that is interesting i mean it's terrifying but it's mm. interesting to watch as you watch you know trump lurch from impulse to impulse it's all about what soothes the pain in that moment mm. and i think that's an interesting lens to look at luther through because you're right he is basically a good man except the pain in him is such that he has to do these horrific things to assuage the pain and the yeah. pain of what of, of, as a as an audience member, you are, you're wishing. And I think, I thought this is one of the things that Smallville got very, very right. Mm-hmm. That um, that the, the portrayal of Lex in that and giving you the psychology of his relationship with his father was was great because it gave you, it gave you basically two models of parenting. Yeah. It said, you know, these are two good people mm-hmm. who start as blank slates and, and one of them has Jonathan Kent as a father and one of them has whatever... Lex's father's first name is yeah, yeah, yeah. Luthor Senior as a father. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lionel, yeah. Lionel, yeah. Lionel. It has to be it's, it's all L's, right? What is this obsession Lori for Lamaris, yeah. Lana Lang. Yeah, yeah. It's nuts. It's Imagine if that happened to you in real life. <laughs> you just go insane. Like, or, or like everyone you ever dated had the same initials <laughs> in their name. <laughs> but I like in this story that we see that Lex, he likes uh, being the man on top and, he, and he's interested in saving the world, but it's, it's only that he's saving it. He doesn't want to save the world because he likes the world. He wants to be the man who's known for that. Mm-hmm. So he's Metropolis's favorite son. And then when Clark gets there, suddenly he turns on a dime and he, and he hates everyone. He he wants attention. And it doesn't really matter what kind. Oh, it's very Trumpian, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, so much of what Trump does is motivated purely 
to eliminate anything that Obama did. Mm-hmm. It, it, exactly. It's, it's like you almost wish that the last guy was bad. Yeah. yeah. Because then Trump would just be doing good, generous things. Because mm-hmm. yeah, he yeah. has no point of view. So, like, if Trump had come after George W. Bush, he'd be like, oh, let's have amnesty for everyone. <laughs> and let's, you know, lower the walls. And that's who Because he, he doesn't care. Yeah, yeah. There's no point of view. So maybe he's not man. Trump. Maybe he's Bizarro Obama. He is Bizarro, Bizarro Obama. Obama. There we go. We just created a DC. Call us. Call us. Yeah. And Bizarro is in the story, too. And I always like that character because he represents what Clark would be like if he was just unrestrained. Mm-hmm. It's the Superman idea. It's what Lex sees Superman as. And that's really interesting to me. Are you a fan of the Bizarro character? Yes. Huge, huge fan. Okay. Uh, because I think, again, one of the things he does that is so great in the miniseries, and I have to say only in the miniseries, mm-hmm. one of the weird things about his run on Man of Steel is once the miniseries finishes, like the quality drops off a cliff. Sure, sure. And it's like weird. You're like, you think, how did that happen? And it's because probably he had 17 deadlines. And yeah, yeah. He had to churn out stories. And, you know, then they're basically battling space orcs. Yeah, yeah. I think there were like 19 editors in this book, too, because it's really important. It's the first Superman story since they destroyed the DC universe. Right. We had that crisis book that mm-hmm. just obliterated everything. And this is the reboot. So I think there are more hands than just right. John's in there. I think that's right. Good producers can make a book really good, as, as you well know. Um, well, thank you very much. Uh, but I think what happens... Uh, I think the choice of each of the elements in those six stories is everything is to illustrate a facet of Clark and Superman's psychology. Mm-hmm. And it's very deliberately done. As you say, the contrast with Lex, you know, as, as, and then the contrast, the contrast with Bizarro is, is fascinating. And it's exactly right. It's, it's without constraint. And that without constraint is both kind of good and bad. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a moment in it. It's a slightly, I mean, the sexuality and the sexual politics of the book is interesting. Mm-hmm. And in rereading it for this, it's the one bit that grated with me. It's the one bit that I think has has significantly dated. It's very 80s, yeah. It's very 80s. And it's, but it's also, it's a kind of, um, it's it kind of varies. Like in the opening story, when Jor-El is making his decision and there's this weird thing that like, oh, you know, he's in touch with humanity and love, but his wife is repulsed by the sight of a naked, not even naked, of a shirtless Kansas farm worker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then she's like, oh, sexuality, horrible, nasty, nasty. And the last lines are him sort of saying, no, I want us to be together in love. And you sort of sense her going, oh, don't touch me. Mm-hmm. Don't touch me. And it's like, like, what are you doing? There's this weird... It's such a weird call to you because then Krypton is this like desolate, uh, emotionless, loveless place. So why do we care when it explodes? Right. 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 And, and then so they kind of commit suicide in this, right? Where the parents, they had the option to leave, mm-hmm. but they just don't because like, well, our, our culture has failed so we're just going to die oh, yeah. with there them. is a real sense of yes we we have failed we deserve this yeah and we will gift our son to stop this next world making the mistakes that we that we that, that we which that we is made. noble and cool but i also i hate that they know earth is there i like when it's more like dirk gently mm-hmm. when they just huck him out into space and they're like all right well good luck to you like because why it, it solves so many continuity problems and logic problems of why they didn't just go there if they knew they could be living gods right. and like why wouldn't they just immigrate but I like it when it's it's sort of the Moses story right when he's mm. cast out and then he just finds his, everything's connected and he finds his way back to the Kents and... well you're choosing essentially you're choosing creation myths mm-hmm. um, there's the Moses version which you just described which has the slight um, it has the sort of Old Testament God mm-hmm. effectively you know Moses is it's 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 ordained but not known. Sure. Right. Sure. Sure. Um, and then the version that he does, which has been done, you know, since, is is the Jesus story, and that Superman is specifically gifted mm-hmm. to Earth as the son of gods to redeem 
a people. Yeah. And so you're just choosing your creation myths. And they yeah. both have, narratively, they both have enormous potency, but they're different choices. But the reason I like Superman, I guess, more than Jesus, sorry, Mom, is that in this story and in this origin, uh, he doesn't really know that he's an alien until later on. And there's, again, you, you mentioned the sexuality stuff sort of makes you bristle. Mm-hmm. I didn't like the way they treated him being an immigrant in this, mm-hmm. in the last issue. I don't know if you recall, but he's he gets beamed with uh, the Kryptonian knowledge by, mm-hmm. by this Jor-El hologram. Yeah. And he, start, he knows all of Kryptonian history and culture and politics, and he knows the prayers to Rao and all that, and then he just disregards it He has to reject it. He, he has, goes, it's, I'm an American. That's, that's really interesting. He has to reject it to um, make us feel okay about him. And isn't that horrible? It's, it's, it's horrific. And, you know, thankfully... And not what an American is. And thankfully in the, you know, the, the, I forget exactly when in the continuity, but at some point um, he, re- he rejects his American citizenship uh, yeah. much, much later and says, no, I have to belong to the world. So he can't be drafted. So yeah. he can't be drafted. And I think that that is interesting. It's this thing, you know, um, the, the, the British, the current British Prime Minister... Theresa May, who is an abhorrent woman, um, famously said that people who consider themselves citizens of the world are not citizens of anywhere. And I think Ugh. that the, the, the horrible parochial small-mindedness to that, because yeah. what she thought she was talking about is the sort of uber-rich and uber-wealthy who are stateless and consider themselves uh, above the law. Sure. Fine. But what she's discounting is that there's a huge population now who do consider themselves citizens of more than one place, mm-hmm. even if they're not, in fact, citizens, of course. who owe their allegiances, who owe their cultural allegiances to more than one place. We are, you know, the 20th century was the century of, of the immigrant, mm-hmm. and the 21st century, sadly, is becoming the century of the refugee. Yeah. And, and that anyone can conceive of modern society not recognizing that is heartless, is extraordinarily heartless. So... Yes, that comic in that moment is heartless because it basically says not only do you have to look like, you know, the the alpha wasp male perfect man, sure. you have to actively reject any cultural impurity. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's I mean it's 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 the Aryan it's the Aryan wet dream. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which is terrifying. It's like blasphemy for Superman. The reason I like this character is because, like, he, from space, he can't see borders because they don't exist. So, there, there are lots of weird choices. I mean, politically, there are lots of weird. I found myself wondering, and I don't know anything about John Byrne's politics, but I found myself wondering about things in in the opening sequence where he doesn't know he's an alien. You do find yourself thinking, "How stupid are you? Mm-hmm. You can fly." You can lift cars. You don't get killed by a bull. Yeah. What did you think you were? There's some anti-Russia stuff in there, which I think is funny. Ma Kent is like, we thought those Ruskies, they shoot dogs and monkeys up to the moon. So we just assumed that you you were like another baby they put in there. We just thought you were Russian. Like, that was really funny. <laughs> that works. That works. <laughs> that, that fits today's worldview just fine. Yeah, yeah. And they said, like, they threw around the buzzword mutant, which is nice because it was like the early 80s, or the late 80s, early 90s. So the X-Men were popular. So they could say Superman's a mutant. Yeah, there's a whole there's a whole storyline in the subsequent issues or in the you know in the continuing series that John writes about this mutant group called the Circle mm-hmm. who thinks Superman is one of them and mm-hmm. try and claim. And I was like, mutants? What are mutants doing? What this, company is this? this? The wrong universe. Exactly, exactly. So Superman is very clearly what I view the world through. That's the prism that that I interpret mm-hmm. all data that comes into my head from. Mm-hmm. But for you, that was Douglas Adams. Is that is that accurate to say? For a very long time, and then continually, yes. What was it about those books and like Dirk in particular that really grabbed you and that, that helped you realize that you weren't alone and and that there were people that had worldviews similar to yours? And I think the Douglas had a unique 
gift as a as a as an author, which was let's be clear what it wasn't. It wasn't plot. <laughs> it, it, it wasn't narratives that made any sense. But he had a kind of telepathy, and he was an extraordinarily brilliant man. I think he was a genius, not in the sense of just a genius creative, or a, I, don't, I don't mean just, I'm not sure he was a genius creative. I think he was a genius in the sense of he had a mind that could see the world differently and come up with new ways of explaining profound things. Mm. And when you read the books and you find yourself just feeling smarter than you were before, because he's found a way to help you think about everything from God to to human psychology to friendship to evolution and as a young boy I remember Hitchhikers at I don't know 11 Mm. and going oh there is someone literally talking straight to me that's what those books feel like they feel like like a like a really brilliant friendly uncle is explaining the world to you whilst telling you jokes Mm -hmm. and so you're like laughing and having fun but you're feeling smarter and in the company of a bunch of people who are as odd and misfit as you are. Yeah, Douglas was very uh, socially awkward as a as a young man, and until he was famous, I think he was always quite socially awkward. But he wasn't unconfident, and that was an interesting model for me because mm-hmm. we often equate the two, right? Mm-hmm. We say someone's shy and awkward; they lack confidence. Mm-hmm. That's actually not true. You can be extremely confident but be socially awkward. Sure, sure. and Douglas was that, and I think as a young boy, I was that. And I went, oh, it's it's okay to be awkward in, you know, with other people and still be confident that you have something to say. Mm-hmm. And trying to balance that was an interesting thing for me that I think I found very comforting in Douglas and in Dirk Gently specifically. Mm-hmm. Dirk Gently is extremely awkward and odd and maladapted to normal society. Sure. But he does not lack in confidence for his abilities. Yeah. And it's not cynical either. There isn't like a I'm better than everybody kind of thing. There's almost like a desperation to connect, but there's something that just isn't there. It's not firing. That's correct. There is a there is a simultaneous confidence in one's ability and an anxiety that anyone will ever like you. Yeah, sure, sure. And, and if, if anyone has ever been the, the, you know, the cleverest kid in class, that's how you feel all the time. <laughs> I think what your work in Douglas Adams shares, too, is that uh, when you're consuming uh, either of them, there's this feeling of like, oh, my God, how did this happen? Like, how did this get made? How did this get past an editor? How did this get, get on the air? There's this really fun, like, it doesn't seem like a normal TV show or a normal book or a normal comic. It feels like something that shouldn't be, but thank God it is. Well, I'm, you know, I'm just delighted to be even a parenthesis on that list of things that includes Douglas. I think that it's a little bit about not knowing what you're not allowed to do. And Let's talk about that, like having just naivete? I think it's it's not quite naivete. It's a... Um, if you're trained to write a book and you're told this is what a book is and this is chapter structure and this is story structure then if you deviate from that it's one of two things you either go I have mastered this and therefore I can now deviate from it Mm. which is great Mm. or you failed sure right those are the two options available to you Mm. if you don't know what a book is (laughs) and you're just doing stuff um, then I think what you do need 
is great editors and great producers and people to help you shape kind of raw creative energy. Sure. And I think that's what happened to Douglas in the early days. I mean, he was exceedingly well read. You know, Douglas was you know was a very fast read, reader and was a huge reader. He was voracious, but I don't think he had ever set out to write a novel. Hmm. What happened was they made a radio series that became a hit, and then someone said, "Oh, you might as well novelize that." Hmm. And he didn't know how to do it, but he knew he had a radio series. And so he tried to put a radio series into a book. <laughs> sure, sure. And what happened was extraordinary and weird and wonderful. Now, your comics feel that way with the Dirk Gently comics, where it, it's, it's like elements of the TV show and elements of Douglas's books and then your own self infused into it. It feels like everything uh, possible condensed in this one medium. Well, I was very lucky. I think you have to know at some point in your career what type of creative you are. Okay. And one of the things that I have come to recognize about myself is I'm not someone who generates like a hundred new ideas every day or a hundred new characters every day. I don't speak in different character voices. You know, you get writers who are like, oh, I know exactly. You know. And sure. I am not quite that. What I am is when I get obsessed with something, I, I get under its skin and I can walk around in it. Okay. So I'm very good at walking around in other people's worlds. Okay. And in writing those comics, I had, you know, two amazing worlds. I had the world that Douglas had created in the first place in his books, mm -hmm. which I knew very well. And I had the world that Max Landis had created for our TV show. And I got just to walk around in that world. And I found I knew because I knew the source material on both sides so well and had been implicit and complicit in certainly the TV one that I could inhabit any part of it. I never doubted what Dirk would do sure, sure. in any corner of that world. It's so impressive, though, because you mentioned that Douglas like wasn't known for his his plot work, but yours, like the way that you tie them together, is brilliant. Uh, and, like, and if you're a fan of the TV show and you watch that first, then you read the comics, the Salmon of Doubt comics. There's things that happen like off off screen from the TV show that happen in the comics that like just dovetail seamlessly. Well, there was a lot of well, thank you. Um, I look, I am a structural nut. I think a lot about puzzles. Sure. Um, not actual puzzles. I have no interest in actual crosswords. <laughs> I don't do jigsaws. I cannot do a Rubik's cube to save my life. But so much of my energy goes into the puzzles of narrative. And because that's what film and TV and all narrative is. It's mm. solving within constraints. You have 42 minutes, you have 11 actors, sure. you, you have to solve puzzles. And I really enjoyed the puzzle that I set myself of how do we get from the book to the TV show. Mm -hmm. And we deliberately, when we set out to do the TV show, knew it was not exactly a sequel to the book, but that it happened after some version of the books. Mm -hmm. And that it probably was not a straight continuity because we wanted to be in America and we wanted Dirk to be slightly younger and different mm -hmm. and so there were certain things that we wanted to do differently but it would as a sort of Douglas Adams um, you know 1.0 guy as a Dirk Gently 1.0 guy I couldn't leave that without connective tissue between the two yeah yeah and what was interesting about Salmon of Doubt is I was writing it as as we were still writing and then making oh, the first TV My show. My head would explode. So there were lots of decisions that weren't made. So for example, in Salmon of Doubt, we hadn't cast the show yet, mm -hmm. right? So there are lots of characters in it. Like we, like we knew Bart was going to exist, but we didn't know who was going to play her. Sure, sure. So in Salmon of Doubt, deliberately, all the characters that end up in the show are portrayed 
either in silhouette or as young children or from angles. So it didn't matter too much who we cast, Mm -hmm. but they would work. But we had certain principles. We knew the Rowdy Three were going to be as multi-ethnic as possible. That was always important to both Max and I. So I was like, okay, in the comics, as long as I have four little kids and they're all different colors, we're good. (laughs) And so stuff like that, you know, I look back at it and I go, oh, it was quite lucky. Most of it ended up clicking. The one thing, of course, that, you know, we we couldn't uh, predict was what Dirk Gently would look like mm-hmm. and I couldn't I couldn't fudge that in the comic book seat we had to make a decision sure. and, my and he made quite a decision the pompadour my god um, so my, my artist on all the Dirk Gently books uh, Ilias Krianis is a man as brilliant as his name is hard to say <laughs> and uh, he's Greek so his name's very easy to say to a Greek person and he well that decision was all his and it was a brilliant one yeah it's great and but you, you say that things shouldn't have existed in the comic book. One of the things that started to happen is I was, you know, you, you can't do Douglas Adams. I couldn't, I was now, I'm never going to, my, my prose is never going to be good as Douglas Adams' prose. No one's ever is. Mm-hmm. But then the question became, all right, how do I do um, pictorial storytelling? How do I do sequential art in a way that nods to, is a homage to, and would be consistent with Douglas Adams' prose? Yeah. So I would come up with these ideas like, okay, we need like a four-page spread that only works if you tear the pages out of the comic and put them on top of each other. Sure, sure. And Elias would go, sure, <laughs> I can do that. Or I would go, okay, we're going to tell, we're going we're gonna to explain the complex eco, you know, uh, um, ecosystem and a supply chain of uh, rhinoceros ivory poaching or rhinoceros horn poaching. That was and, uncanny and we, to me. Yeah. And we're going to do it as a jigsaw. Mm-hmm. And Elias would go, sure. <laughs> and I, we had never met. Elias and I have met now, but we never met when we were working on the book because he lives in Greece. And we never spoke. Man. There was no Skype. There was no FaceTime. Uh, sometimes we would instant message and he would like send me drawings that he was like, he would literally film himself drawings on instant message. Oh, and he would go, what about this? I go, yeah, no, that's good. But he, like I guess the, the books are good in very large part because of him. Yeah, he did excellent work. Excellent work. Well, this has been great, man. I, I'm so happy I got to talk to you today. You said in one of your talks that's on YouTube, I think you're talking to like the Television Academy. Um, whoever said "Never Meet Your Heroes" was an idiot, and I and that's why I tweeted out to you and you invited <laughs> me to come talk to you today. And I think that's such, that's such great advice. So uh, you're one of my heroes in storytelling. This is great. So thank you so much. Well, thank you, and I'm very glad to have done this and to have met you. And I'm glad you tweeted me. Everything good starts. With reaching out, I think. Reach out. Yeah, yeah. Reach out. So where can folks find you online? And also, let's talk about your creative, your current creative endeavors a little bit. You're working on the Atlantis Morissette, uh, Jaggy Little Pill musical. People can go see. People can go see that. Um, that's currently on at the uh, American Repertory Theater in Boston. We're there for another six weeks or so till the middle of July. And that has been an extraordinarily happy um, project and collaboration. It was... Kind of similar, not as long, but, you know, the album, actually almost exactly as long. The album came out in 1995. Mm-hmm. Alanis and I are exactly the same age. I think I'm like three months younger than her or something, mm-hmm. which has the terrifying piece of information that she wrote that album when she was 19 years old. Man. And, you know, honestly, you do work that good when you're 19. You, why would you ever leave your house again? Yeah, you drop the mic. You're done. Yeah. Walk away. Walk away. But so I've loved, I love that album you know, from the point I, I I heard it, as did, you know, 30 million other people. But then about 10 years ago, maybe a bit less, about nine, eight, nine years ago, I just had this moment of realization that it had a narrative 
locked in it. Mm. It had a story in it that wasn't the Alanis Morissette story. Um, Alanis's own story is very interesting, but it, I just had this, it's like this puzzle moment when I went, oh, there is another narrative locked in here mm. that is bigger than and different from just the story of one person's life. And, it, it, and I didn't know what it was, but I sensed bits of it. I thought it was about mothers and daughters. I thought it was about sexual power and sexual politics. And that's about as far as I got. I also knew that I wasn't the guy to write it. Hmm. And um, for amongst other reasons, I knew that a guy shouldn't write it. Sure. And, <laughs> it's very wise of you. And it's, you know, it is, it is, a, it is an album uh, of, about many things, but it is, um, to a large extent, about sexual power and about being a woman. And being a mother, being a daughter, coming of age, um, being a woman in the world. And so I had the idea that there was a narrative in it. Alanis, bless her, on our very first meeting, agreed and said, you know, let's try. And then uh, the person I wanted to write it has written it. Diablo Cody was literally the only person we ever really thought should write it. And She's so great. I, uh, I wish she had been on Twitter. She, she used to be on Twitter. Diablo was very early on Twitter. She had a big following. She had like a million people. But then she quit Twitter one day. So I couldn't just tweet her. Mm-hmm. So I had to do like the boring thing. I had to call agents. And That's so old school. It's like the Flintstones, man. Yeah. You had to send a dove into her office. That's what it feels like. No, it's, uh, <laughs> look, calling an agent to try and get like, a, like an A-list writer is not like sending a dove. It's like sending a pheasant into a shooting range. That's really what you're doing. That is the odds of you getting the person you want. But somehow, uh, in part because Diablo's agent is the wonderful Sarah Self, somehow our pigeon survived, got to Diablo, and she sent a pigeon back saying yes. That's incredible. All right, so we'll all go see that. And then you're on Twitter. What is your handle? Can we uh, at Arvd, A-R-V-D. That finds me most places, but Twitter is where I am most active excellent and go watch Dirk Gently it's on DVD right now both seasons both seasons coming to Hulu season 2 arrives on Hulu June 14th awesome and it's highly recommended alright so until next time friends up up and away ooh super friends with Eric Esquivel